The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. Well, today's topic is happy uh, media. We're in the second part of a series called Hashtag Happy. Of course, last night, if you enjoyed the Buckeyes win, that was happy media, right? But I want to begin today with a picture of pure happiness. Mike Trout is a standout baseball player for the Los Angeles Angels. Though young, he is a bona fide star and has already drawn comparison to some of baseball's greats. At the same time, he remains very down to earth. He still signs autographs and is a fan favorite of many boys and girls. Watch the reaction of this young fan when he gets his prized autograph. I love that. It is just pure happiness. Pure happiness. Media, when it captures moments like this, puts its best foot forward. And media can have a very positive impact on our world. One psychologist who studies brain, behavior, and media discussed this in education, as well as talked about an interview with the astronaut Buzz Aldrin. He wrote this, that media-centric education is growing a pace, at a quick pace. Education from kindergarten through graduate school, corporate education and career training is being transformed by media. I recently enjoyed dinner with Apollo astronaut Buzz Aldrin, and we talked about the current state of education, media, and technology. Buzz, who earned a PhD in astronautics from MIT, observed that, quote, Children today have more computer power at their fingertips to do their homework than was on board the space vehicles that first carried us into space. Close quote. When I asked Buzz, is this a good thing or a bad thing, he shot back, it's great, absolutely. Well, media and social media are distributors and drivers of social change. And we need increased understanding of the effects of media to help manage our future. This says this individual. Now, by way of illustration, if you have ever doubted the effect media can have on social behavior, I present to you Exhibit A. Okay? You know what that is? <laughs> Drastic changes in the media over the last 50 years have helped or have really reshaped the perception of cigarette smokers. Cigarettes used to be aggressively advertised in ads like this one. For those of you too young to know, this is the Marlboro, Marlboro, I can't even say it, Marlboro man. Tough, self-sufficient, hard-working, It was brilliant marketing, an ad reflecting America's image of itself. Cigarettes were used heavily in Hollywood, in scenes with everyday sitcom stars, to movie stars like Ronald Reagan. 
Look at that shot. It's a pack of Chesterfields. Now, all of this, of course, stopped a long time ago. With ad restrictions and using the media platform to stage an aggressive no-smoking campaign, the number of smokers has drastically fallen. Fifty years ago, 42% of U.S. adults smoked. Today, that figure stands at about 17.8% and is still dropping. Media can shape the way we see the world and impact our behavior. It can be a force for good. But media can also have a downside. Media can create the perception that the world is a far darker place than it actually is. Big Think website discussed why we love bad news. Take a look at this headlines from 1906. The fact that we love bad news is not anything new. This is in New York in 1906. Here are some of the headlines, which I don't even know what they mean, but I, they're not good. Harry Thaw, sounds like a Batman character out of the, Harry, or one of the bad guys. Harry Thaw kills Stanford White on roof garden. Or girl slain in rowboat by her suitor. Probably not one you'll see today. Or, and this I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. Five ICE trust heads sent to jail for a year. Or, shoots architect in back as he sits talking to woman. The New York American, 1906. Now, the media, this think website suggests, seems to play to our fears and our desire for the negative. They suggest... That and, and, and they also say that the way that our brain works, the way that our brain works also plays into this. Every second of every day, our brain is bombarded by more data than we could ever hope to process. Auditory data is funneled to a sliver of the temporal lobe called the amygdala. Didn't know you were going to get a brain lesson today, but... The amygdala sits there in the temporal lobe. Here's what its job is. It is our danger detector. It's our early warning system. It literally comes through all of the input looking for danger and then putting the brain on high alert. The amygdala literally calls our attention to all the negative stories. And if you see a thousand stories, you're going to focus on the negative ones, and the media takes advantage of this. You probably have heard the old adage that travels around media rooms, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, that's why 90% of the news in the newspaper and on television is negative, because we pay attention to it. Now... Daniel Kahneman, who is an award-winning author, he talks about this as well, that we have these biases. We have these biases that only add and only reinforce our desire to connect with and sort of zero in on, like a laser, stories that are negative. And so ultimately, we are kept 
many of us, in this negative state of mind. Now, our title today is Happy Media. A curious title you suggest. And based on the data I've just talked about, you might think that I am suggesting that we limit our TV watching to Mike Trout signing autographs for cute kids or Veggie Tales or the Hallmark Channel and exclude all the terrible things that are happening in our world. Skip the nightly news and utterly forsake the 24-7 news cycle. If you think I'm suggesting that, not, not too fast. Not so fast here. Because I'm not suggesting that we put our heads in the proverbial sand and sing kumbaya while holding hands while the world just spins out of control. But I am asking this. Can there be such an overload of negativity that it goes way beyond what we need to be informed or what we need to be engaged? And in light of the bias for the negative... Can we change the happiness gauge in our hearts by simply changing some of our media habits? Those are the questions I want to explore today. So media is the topic of the second chapter of the book that we are studying that inspired this series. And to help us reflect on our media intake, we're going to break down a very significant passage of the New Testament about five or six verses. It's in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Would you stand as I read this passage, and then we'll invite God to speak to us. Beginning in verse 4, the author says, Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, in your Son's name, we come before you this morning with hearts eager and anxious to learn, and we come with hearts, Father, anticipating you meeting with us and your presence filling not only this room, but your presence filling our hearts. Father, manifest and reveal yourself in ways that surprise us and even overwhelm us this morning. Let us be so open to hear you, so anxious to know what your words communicate to us today. Father, help me to get out of the way. If there's something that's not from you, may I not share it. May all that remain the things that you want us to understand and to hear. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I want to roll through a series of questions to help us understand this passage. And the first question is this. What is the source of our happiness? What is the source of our happiness? Paul is writing this book from prison. He's writing to a group of young believers in a Greek city named Philippi, and they're experiencing tough times. They have been opposed because of their faith in Jesus. We're not quite sure what that looked like, but it could have meant that there were economic or social consequences as a result of being a part of this church. Paul, into this mix, surprisingly says, Rejoice in the Lord. Very simply, this means that happiness is, being, is, happiness is found in being connected to God. Make your relationship to God the primary source of your happiness. There is a well, Paul is saying here, that does not run dry. To rejoice in the Lord is not merely a polite saying. It is a command that Paul finds worth repeating. And God would never give us a command that he would not also give us the grace to act on it, to do it. This is something we can do. And you ask, well, how do I rejoice in the Lord when everything in me says the opposite? We have to think about this a little bit. To find my happiness in God does not deny sad or even depressed or grieving emotions. To rejoice in the Lord is more than just sort of slapping a happy face over a heart that is hurting. Parenthetically, by the way, we've been learning that social media creates this illusion that everybody's happy but me. And it's because of this, people slapping on a happy face when it doesn't really reflect what's in them. But this is not what we're talking about to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord is not so much an emotion as it is a conscious choice to say yes to God. To say to God, I believe in you. I trust you. You are enough for me. I believe in the love of God. I believe in the promises of God. I believe, like A.W. Tozer said, that God can meet the total demands of my nature. To rejoice in the Lord is not trying to manufacture a feeling. To rejoice in the Lord is to recognize the fact that God is my highest and greatest treasure. God is my ultimate good. And because he is my anchor, my core identity cannot be moved or swayed by my present difficulties. My future is in his hands. So Paul says to these young Christians, rejoice even in the midst of your trouble. And to further this counterintuitive response, look at the next thing he says. Don't insist on your rights. Don't insist on getting your way. 
Don't walk into your day with a proud posture, demanding everyone to bow to your wishes and your needs. He says, rather, let your gentleness, let your gentleness be evident to all. Wow. To the one who is creating trouble in your life, be gentle. This word gentleness means reasonableness, considerate, forbearance. It means even in some instances that you personally suffer because you refuse to fight back. In the larger picture, Paul wants these Christians to be known for their gentleness as they respond to those who oppose them. This remains solid advice for Christians today as we engage and interact with an angry and cynical culture. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And finally, Paul adds this rejoinder that the Lord is near. I believe that means not only is he close to us, but that he is going to return. And when he returns, he will make every wrong right. Knowing this, that Christ will return, knowing that Christ will right every wrong, helps believers to let go and not make vengeance a personal crusade. Knowing this helps believers to forgive and to believe that God is a source of happiness. Even when I have been betrayed, God is still the source of happiness. And God teaches me how to suffer well. And God teaches me, and his, he teaches me how to suffer well, and that suffering redeems me so that I become a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better parent. And so this first truth is that God is the source of our happiness. And so the next question just flows very logically from it. How can I access that source of happiness? How can I connect to and access that source of happiness? Well, Paul is just very simple here. We are given the privilege of prayer to access God. We are given, again here, a command that seems impossible. And it is impossible without God. Look at verse 6 and let it just sit on you for a moment. Verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Wow. Wow. You see, anytime fear or anxiety comes into our lives, it is an impetus to turn or return to God and talk with Him, not with pompous religious language, but in cries for mercy, in cries for help. The one condition in our prayers is to do it with thanksgiving. To give thanks is not just to mouth some formula, but to say to God, I believe that you are good. And I believe that you are in control. Despite all the evidence otherwise, it feels unfair to me. It feels like God is against me. This circumstance hurts deeply. Despite all the evidence to say, God, I will trust you. And God, I will give thanks to you is a powerful statement of our trust. And then look at the promise that's attached to this. When this takes place, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Now, this peace may not happen immediately. It could, but it may not happen immediately. To truly pray is not only to talk to God, but also to listen to God. And God may have things he needs to speak into you to address the underlying reasons for your anxiety. There may be attitudes he has to shake you free from, or maybe behaviors he needs to shake you free from. But when we pray and when we give thanks and when we listen, the result is peace. And it is a peace that defies description. It is a peace that cannot be logically explained. It is not rational for it is a peace that comes in the middle of a conflict. The word guard here is a military word. It pictures a fort. Uh, It pictures a high wall around your mind, protecting you from anxious or fearful thoughts. I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you the number of times I have experienced this personally in my life. I'm pressed by some problem that I cannot solve. I'm paralyzed by anxiety. I'm paralyzed by fear. I talk to God in a simple, plain language of need. And He answers. Many times by not removing the source of pain. But by meeting me right where I'm at and quieting my heart with a sense of his great love. It's as if I hear him say through his word, I have everything you need. I am all you need. And that gives me a peace of mind in the middle of a storm that I really can't even barely explain to you. That truth that God is all we need, he spoke to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and to the disciples And the promises that he gave to them are the same promises that are ours in Christ. Just yesterday, I was up at before five in the morning and I was stretched and pulled in many ways from demands on my time and some situations without mass. Thirty years of pastoring does not preclude me from Fresh challenges where I feel a sense of inadequacy and sometimes I feel dread. A few minutes of united prayer the night before with my wife and a few moments with God at 6 a.m. were enough to shape my day and to move it in a positive light, even feeling the sense of inadequacy that I felt. We access the source of happiness through prayer and through gratitude. And that leads now to the final question, a third really pressing question. Man, if I can get to that place of peace and not experiencing anxiety and worry, man, is there a way I can sustain that? Can I continue that happiness? Paul says that we can. And it relates to the world of our thought life and our thoughts Look at verses 8 and 9. I'll read these in a moment, but let me say this. Here's what Paul says in so many words. Paul says, think about your thinking. What is your mind focused on? What do you fill your mind with? You know, as much as you and I would like to believe 
that our minds and our belief systems are independent of what we put into it. We can put stuff into it, and it doesn't affect me. There's nothing in our world that would say that's the case. And indeed, our happiness gauge is affected by the things that we allow into our minds and what we are covering today by the media choices that we make. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Wow. Think about what you think about. What does Paul have in mind here? I believe where Paul is going with this is Paul is speaking here of how to discern our surrounding culture. Now, such excellence like this, of course, of course, is found in Scripture. And that is the beginning point of what we fill our mind with. But we also live in a world that we get to fill in empty spaces with a cultural expression. Life includes an empty canvas, so to speak, that God gives us the freedom to paint that canvas with the colors of our choosing. What do I mean by this? Let me explain. You see, we are all cultural, and we are all artistic at some level. Even you guys out there. Even you guys are artistic at some level. My son and I were discussing one of the like manly guys around our church. My son's in construction, and this guy was in construction. We were both ex- describing how this guy who can just do anything, virtually anything, in terms of construction, is also deeply artistic. Deeply artistic. We, we choose our culture, and that affects the way we decorate our houses. It affects the clothes you buy. It affects the way you style your hair, or don't. It affects the enter- entertainment choices that you will make this evening. You might not think of yourself as artistic, but in fact you are. We all choose a certain kind of culture to fill our lives with. Your culture may be drab and dull, but you've still chosen that. And the drabness and dullness says something about you. You're functional, you're pragmatic, you're simple. And you like it that way. Well, our theme today is media. And you get to fill your life with this cultural expression. Books, art, movies, TV, music, technology. Every day you paint the canvas. Paul's exhortation to us is that we must be discerning in the colors that we choose. And I think Paul is saying is that when we choose things that are consistently and are dominated by the things opposite of this list, it's like Paul saying, why do you do this to yourself? Your mood is darkened. You feel pessimistic. You're unhappy. But look at what you're filling your mind with. Why do you do, your, do this to yourself? Listen. Keep in mind 
that media, here's a little parenthesis, keep in mind, that media does not have to be Christian to represent these qualities. The truth of God cannot be repressed. It can't be. And it keeps breaking through, even through the art of some, some art of non-believers. This happens because we are made in the image of God. And even though that image has been marred, it has not been completely destroyed. And so we find art that inspires awe, our champions' heroism, our loyalty in relationships. Art can inspire beautiful friendships or show the power of committed, maturing love over many, many, many years. Art can do all that. And Paul is saying, focus on that kind of canvas, those kinds of colors on your canvas. This can help you sustain happiness. Your happiness gauge, Paul is saying, can be sustained by meditating first on God's truth and then coloring in your life with colors that conform to the image of Christ. Literature, art, music, technology, TV, on and on. What are you filling your mind with? I, a little story from some time ago, many years, actually some time ago. Those of you that know me know two things about me. One is I sometimes struggle with depression. And I sometimes, I, I, I can be on the spectrum between positive and negative. I can be somewhat negative, can be somewhat morose at points, and just can be kind of, you know, just have a negative view of life. Those of you who know me well, no, I, I struggle and wrestle with those things. Secondly, you know I love to read. I love to read a lot, of, a lot of fiction. And I had this space of time where I kept reading and going back to these very depressing novels. And my wife is like, why are you doing this to yourself? I can see how your mood is affected and darkened by these. You need greater balance in your media intake. See, I wanted to think that I was above that. I was above these things influencing me. But we're not. We're not. And my precious wife saw that. And so I tried to get a little healthier diet and balance. There's nothing necessarily wrong or sinful with those books as, a, as they were. But, you know, when we get an imbalance in our media intake, just like eating food, when you don't eat the right balance of food, you're going to feel sick. In the same way, when your media intake is imbalanced, it can impact the way you feel about yourself, the way you feel about life itself. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. The only way to drive out bad culture is to create good culture. (laughs) You're going to have a culture. Choose a good one. Choose a good one. Okay, I just really have one application, one main application today. I've already dove into the question of how does media intersect with this scripture. And I'm going to use a phrase from the Murray book. Here's the application in your life. And that is to starve out the mental junk. Starve it out. Starve out the mental junk. Think about your media diet. And for example, do not let your media diet be dominated with negative thinking, sensationalized stories, misrepresentations, misleading headlines, falsehoods, base behavior, violence for violence's sake, gratuitous violence, impurity. If 
you focus on the negative exclusively, your mood will darken and your happiness gauge will be heading towards empty. It is unfortunate, as Murray points out, that the sordid side of life sells, doesn't it? It's true. The sordid side sells. Fifty Shades of Grey last year celebrated um, sadistic sex, and it drew mass media attention. It was on a New York, best, uh, New York Times bestsellers list for months. And while many of us in this room have enough sense to not get drawn into the blatantly impure, we too as believer can, believers can be overly influenced by the negative in our culture and lose sight of the goodness of God. The goodness of God in people made in His image and the goodness of God in nature that simply cannot be repressed or held down. David Murray said this, if we starve ourselves of the mental junk and replace it with what is true, admirable, right, pure, beautiful, and attractive, peace will stand as, as a sentinel around all around our feelings and thoughts creating an impregnable fortress of calm and tranquility. The peace of God and the God of peace will be with you. You know, this is the amazing thing about following Jesus. It is not simply a matter of replacing a few bad behaviors with a few good ones. It's not simply coming to church on Sunday morning rather than staying home. But following Jesus penetrates to the deepest parts of who we are, to our very thought life. It is a complete and radical change at the core of who we are. Even my very thoughts change. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. And even my desires, once bent south by narcissistic thoughts and by impure thoughts, When we come to Christ, our very desires are set on a path to being restored to their original intent. Those desires were made for a pure desire for God and a life of beauty, a life of excellence, a life of love. Can you envision a life where your very desires match the created world as God made it? Can you imagine a life set free from the evil desires that now enslave you? This is the hope of the gospel message, that kind of change. This is the way the writer of the Proverbs said it. In just a little phrase, he says, The thoughts of the righteous are just. Think about that. It is interesting what it does not say. It does not say the just think righteous thoughts. Okay? Now the truth is, is that when we focus on being righteous or being rightly related to God, what begins to spring out from us are just thoughts. Thoughts that are fair and generous, without prejudice, without judging others without being condemning and critical. When we focus on being rightly related to God, we find that we think in a much more just 
way. It's amazing. You see, Christians see the value of getting the order right. We don't focus on being just so we can be considered righteous. We focus on being righteous so that we will be just. And that happens when we become rightly related to God. We find that from the inside out, he transforms our thinking, and we begin to think the same thoughts that Jesus thinks. We begin this journey towards happy media by being righteous. And we do that through placing our faith in the person of Jesus, in what he accomplished at the cross when he died. And in his death, in the shedding of his blood, giving to us the opportunity to receive forgiveness and to receive the confidence by his resurrection that we too will resurrect and can have confidence that we will live in the age to come. Jesus makes new our very thoughts. And Jesus Christ can restore us to a life of beauty, a life of goodness, a life of purity, and a life of love. It is a free gift that we cannot work for, nor that we will ever deserve. We must simply receive it by faith. William Barclay said this, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. This is the beauty and the irony of following Jesus. It is not without trouble, but he can make you absurdly happy. Honestly, that has been my experience through lots of ups and downs. But I've had so many seasons in my life, so many times where I have been absurdly happy because of Christ's role in my life. And I hope it is for you as well. I want that to be your experience also. And so I encourage you today, decide today, I am going to follow Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. Pray with me. Father, Father, as I look out at my friends here, I suspect that there are some this morning, Father, who feel the pain of a world's of thought that is hurtful to them and hurtful to you, and they need this morning to hear that word of forgiveness and that word of comfort, and I pray that you will bring that holy word to them that they are forgiven. They are your son. They are your daughter. Father, for others this morning, they came here and they're apathetic. They've given up on the life of thought. And what you wanted to say to them this morning was a great challenge to guard their hearts, to bring every thought into obedience to Jesus. Father, give them that word. Father, for those that came this morning that have felt betrayed and have had trouble forgiving, 
God, remind them that you're near. For those this morning, Father, that find that they're reacting to that person hurting them and opposing them, God, give them that grace and that spirit to be gentle. Gentle even to that person. Father, for the person this morning feeling simply alone, without any hope, in despair, Father, meet them with that quiet reminder that you are the source of their happiness. Ultimately, no human being, ultimately, no accomplishment, ultimately, no material good, but you alone are the source of their happiness. And Father, bring that word to them that they might connect to you in a powerful way here. And Father, as we close or move to our next segment here of our service, as we sing, as we give our offering, as we turn to you in prayer, continue to draw and connect and unite us together under your guidance. Thank you that we are one as a body. We pray you'd continue to speak. Father, for some, perhaps these next moments contain the gift that you want to give them. Might they be able to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray.